just to let you know in case you want to go be with the kids right now, I, uh, I don't preach that often. And so when I get a chance, I like to do it. Uh, just ringing out there, so ringing up here a little bit. Just, and, and I'm fine with it as long as you're, you guys are good. I'm, I'm, I'm top shelf there. Thank you so much for that time of worship, you guys. You know, Betty and I were having quite a discussion. In fact, we got a little testy with each other on the way up here about about what worship is and what worship isn't. And I lead worship back in Baker City, and I don't even like to call it that. And that was one of our things we were talking about. And it occurred to me, and maybe this is just where my heart is, Judy, but, uh, you know, one of the things that I think is a problem in the church, and this is something I've been chewing on. I'm going to tell you this straight up. This is process, and I'm processing on you. So you take this home today, you process it, and send me an email or something about what you came up with. Don't send me a text. Just just email it or something, you know. But anyway, if we are to worship, we're to worship in spirit and in truth. Amen? And I, uh, I've often thought about that term and wondered what that actually meant to me. What does it mean to you? What does it mean to the worshiper to worship in spirit and in truth? You see, I, uh, I know some people that are all about the Spirit. You know what I'm talking about? And th- th- that's the only place they go. They don't ever sit down and read the truth or spend time talking about the truth. They, uh, they're, some, of, some of the folks just, just kind of want to live in, in the Spirit la-la thing. You know what I'm saying? Hear me right on this. I love Brother Michael Youssef when he preaches on the radio. Hear me right. Like, if I disagree with them, I'm wrong, you know. But uh, hear me right on that. But I know some folks that always want to live in the Spirit. They don't want to live in the truth part of worship. And I think there's so much wrong with that. And I see a, a real weakness in folks that could have more to offer to this world in discipling this world and bringing people to Christ. And then I know some folks that are on the other extreme, and all they do is spend their time doing the truth. And they, they are so into the truth, they won't say anything unless it's in quotations right out of the King James Version of the Bible, or the Bible anyway. And if you say something or offer something that's not in those quotations directly out of the Bible, then you're not living in the truth and you're not a true worshiper. And I think that's why, excuse me, I'm going to move that because I'll probably do that again, Judy. I have a tendency to flail around a little bit. Okay, hold steady, boy. And uh, I think that's why the Word tells us to worship in spirit and in truth. All of that is important. We're supposed to have a great knowledge of the Word of God. And we're supposed to not go out by ourselves and spend all our time reading the Word and just thinking our own thoughts, but we're to come together corporately. We're to go to Bible studies and classes and, and come and hear preachers and go home and discuss what he talked about and, and what the Word is saying to us. And then we're supposed to live in the Spirit. The Spirit is what inspires us to continue to go forward and to reach out at times when we're supposed to reach out, keep our mouths shut when they're supposed to keep shut, and speak when we're supposed to speak, and love when we're supposed to love, which is all the time. And that's all extra. It's just what I got out of your time today, uh, kind of where I'm at these days and kind of living in some of that. But I'm here just to worship with you today. And if God has taught me anything of value at all here today, I hope that I can share it with you. I would say this, that my heart has lately 
I'm in some kind of a growth pattern. I haven't totally figured out what it is to put it all into words yet. Some of it you just got. Another part of it has to do with, uh, I wonder if the church is doing all it can to reach the lost. I'm concerned about it because we're not getting younger in the church. We're getting older. There are a lot of young people that aren't coming to the church anymore. When I was a kid, that was a place to be. You know, once I found the Lord and found that body of believers in Kalispell, Montana, which is where I was born and raised, that was the only place I ever wanted to be. You know, we didn't have a full-time youth pastor. We had a little church of about 150 people, but about 70 of that was teenagers in the church. And Elva Mae Knudsen, bless her heart, she only knew four or four times, and her hand went like that on everything. We had a piano and an organ, you know, and it didn't matter if it was six, eight, or two, three, or four, four, or whatever it was. Her hand went the same all the time. That didn't matter to us. It didn't matter a bit. We sang to our, sang our hearts out because it was all to the glory of God, and we loved the church. We loved being together. And we knew the old folks, and the old folks knew us by name, you know. And I couldn't, I couldn't wait to get there and see the pretty girl. I was hoping to hold her hand in church maybe. But, but also I was glad to see Leonard Marshall and some of the, the old folks that I knew would be there with open arms waiting to welcome me in that day. So I got all these things going in this kind of the top of this funnel for me lately. It's like a big hopper up here. And I'm concerned that the church is not ministering the way we should be. Something is missing. And I'm going to try to unpack a little of that today. Just This is going to probably be a sermon of more of <coughs> addressing problems than it is solutions. I don't know. We'll let the Holy Spirit give us the solutions. I'm going to have you turn with me to the book of Romans. And right at the first chapter of the book of Romans, And I wrote this scripture down so I can have another one just kind of ready to go here in a minute. It'll make me look so slick and smooth. In verse 16, Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says some pretty amazing things. I think Paul is an amazing man. I think he was an amazing prophet. I think he was an amazing pastor. I think he was an amazing missionary. And I think God gave him incredible talents and gifts to help the early church and reach into all those far-off places that he needed to go. He was a man with an amazing amount of talent, and God used him for his glory. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. So if you're not a Jew, you're in that second category, just like me. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now these two verses contain probably one of the greatest summaries of the gospel that's ever been written. It's, it's a powerful passage if you really sit and just let it soak into you just a little bit. It's a clear declaration of God's power to save all who will believe. No matter your nationality, no matter your race, no matter your status in society, it's for you. 
And it's a clear explanation of why Paul the Apostle was never ashamed of the Gospel. He never was that we know of. Paul was not ashamed of the Gospel because it was the good news. And that's what we have. That's what we have to offer this world is the hope of the good news. I, I did a funeral the other day. Uh, I don't know if any of you would even know them. Uh, the Deerdorf family from Richland Valley over in, in our neck of the woods. But uh, fantastic couple. Uh, Eldon and his wife Marge owned the uh, Cornucopia pack station up out of Halfway for a whole, whole bunch of years, and people know him. He was a government hunter for the state of Oregon. It's a kind of an, a bygone generation era. is kind of it's going away. And Marge passed away. He was 76. She got cancer. Uh, for the second time, the first time, she was miraculously healed. And, uh, and ama another amazing story. But as I was sharing with uh, the group up there at Richland, it was outdoors on a, uh, on a beautiful park setting, and they had worked all this. She was a hunter. She was an amazing hunter. If I had half the trophy she had hanging on the wall, I'd be feeling kind of prideful probably. It was an amazing venture that they took so much time to put together for Marge. But at one point, I just shared with the folks. I said, I know there are folks here today who think that every time they come to a funeral, it's the preacher's job to corner you and beat you over the head with the gospel. <laughs> and there was a little chuckle in the crowd, kind of like that. And it was about 250, 300 people sitting outside there. A lot of cowboys. A lot of cowboy hats, a lot of cowboy boots. <laughs> and I said, but here's the deal. You may feel a little cornered. You may feel like I'm taking the opportunity. Well, I am. <laughs> because the only real hope I have to offer you is the hope of the gospel. That's really it. I don't really have anything else to offer. That's why I'm standing in front of you guys today. I'm not here to talk about anything else. The only reason I'm here is to talk about the hope we have in Christ Jesus. That's it. That's all I have. But Paul was not ashamed because he knew it was the only hope we have. It was the good news. And it was the good news from God Himself. And who doesn't like to be the bearer of good news? <laughs> You know, I like to bear good news. I've had the other kind. I'm a chaplain with the uh, public safety people over there. And I, I got a call yesterday, but I had to go do a wedding. But I get a lot of these kind of calls. And my wife knows sometimes it's like in the middle of the night you get these calls to go help the policeman deliver a death notification or to go help somebody who whose loved one just committed suicide or whatever, you know. And, and uh, it's not a job I relish. I don't know why God keeps me doing it. But actually, Paul here had every human reason to be ashamed or afraid. If I look at all the things Paul did, you ever just look at his stuff? You look at his itinerary, his repertoire, pretty amazing. And it scared me to death to be Paul. Probably much like our day, Paul's day was a day of moral degeneracy in the hideous days of Nero. And Rome was a moral sewer at his time of detestable and inconceivable wickedness. And this condition, this condition stands directly opposed to the moral righteousness of the gospel. So when you're living in a society that is becoming immoral, becoming 
degeneratively more wicked, it stands in direct opposition to the hope of the gospel. You see that why we're in the condition we're in more and more these days? Paul was by nationality a Jew. And that's a race that was thought by many to be a despicable and subhuman race. The tendency for Paul, if I'd been him, would have been maybe naturally he'd be tempted to shy away from the non-Jews or even the non-Christians. Kind of just hang around with my own folks, stay in my comfort zone. Anyone who was not a believer, probably where I wouldn't want to be. But that wasn't Paul. And Paul preached an almost unbelievable gospel. Check this. Jesus, who was a, a male member of the Jewish race, said to be the Savior of the world. We'll talk about that in this degenerative place he was in. Check. Said to be a, a mere man and the Son of God. Check. His death and resurrection? Did I go somewhere? I'll just talk louder. All works for me. <laughs> Check his death and resurrection. Check he died for all men. That all men and they considered his message foolishness in Greece. He was considered a stumbling block to his own people, the Jews. Isn't that amazing? There were several times in Paul's life when he could have given up in shame and fled to some part of the earth and become obscure to just melt away into the landscape of nor normal and just, just disappear. I think I'm back a little bit. I don't know. Is it back? Oh, this one here. Okay. Technical things are just amazing, aren't they? I think I'm back. Whatever you did with my pants pocket, it's good. He could have just disappeared and went his own way and forgot about this calling that was on his life. You know, some pretty amazing things. I, I didn't even have this in the notes. I'm thinking of this. Paul was on a donkey headed for a place called Damascus to go persecute a bunch of more Christians. It's just what he got into doing, and he sort of seemed to love it. It was like his calling. When God showed up, knocked him off his donkey, and changed his whole life. You might look back and you might say there were some pretty dramatic things that happened in my life and God showed up. And He called me to something different. But what happens when once in a while the rough gets a little going? You remember when you first came to Christ and how zealous you were to share the gospel? I totally remember it. I was 15 years old. I went to church on a Sunday because my mom made us. She decided we were all going to go to church now. And I was the oldest of four kids in Kalispell, Montana. It was in February of 1970. 
And I thought, Mom, you are screwing up my life. You are taking away my other Saturday. This is going to be a horrible experience. I don't know any of those people, and I don't want to know any of those people. didn't matter. You didn't, those were things I more thought than said. In those days, you didn't talk back to your mom like that. You might think it, but you're never going to say it because Dad's sitting there, and you just don't do that stuff. You know, you might have a conversation with Dad in a little bit of a rebellious attitude, as long as you were polite about it, but you never talked to your mom that way. <laughs> so I remember thinking that. But I went to church that next Sunday, and they invited my family, invited the whole church. There was a big citywide crusade going on at the high school. Every church in town, we're talking the Catholics, we're talking the Lutherans, every Baptist faction you can think of, the, the Methodists were there. I found out later, years later, that God was doing a revival thing in Kalispell, Montana, right then, right then. I just happened to get swept up in it, praise God. Totally unaware of any of it. It just was. And uh, sitting there in the second row, because the kids from the church met my brother and I at the door, sucked us right down front in the theater seats. And you know, back in those days, in the high school auditorium, it was the old wooden seats that you have to flip up. And uh, uh, the guy that was up front, I hadn't put this in the notes either, so this is coming out, and my mind won't, it spins a lot. It, it loses its traction about names and things. What do you, you know what I'm talking about? Okay. And, and anyway, this family was up there doing country gospel music, and I was totally into it. Man, I was going, wow, this is amazing. And the stage was like right up here. Then he went to preaching. And I was only 15. I hadn't raped anybody or murdered anybody yet, really, you know, or, or robbed anybody too bad. I hadn't done any really bad stuff, but suddenly I felt like that guy knew every thought I had ever had, everything that had ever crossed my mind to do, and everything that could be a sin in my life. When he gave the invitation to come forward, I wasn't going. I mean, my knuckles were hanging on for all I was worth, but my brother stood up to go. And the only way for him to get out was for me to stand up and lift up my seat. And I lost my grip. And I went. And my life's been changed. It was changed from that moment on. Completely changed. You see, there's actually... I'm going, to, I'm going to back up just a little bit. Many are ashamed of the gospel today. There's a fear of intellectual shame. There's a fear that the gospel doesn't measure up against those smart people and their theories and their philosophies. Sometimes we're ashamed because we don't feel like we know enough about what we should be saying. So we keep our mouth shut. But actually, I want to encourage you today, that one won't stand before God. <laughs> Because there is no greater philosophy that's ever existed. There's no greater reasoning that has ever been worked through than that of the gospel of God. You see, a man holds either to the philosophy and thought of the world, the cosmos, which Satan has charge of, or to the philosophy and thought of God's Son, the gospel of Jesus. Does that simplify things a bit? Maybe you've made it more confusing than that, and sometimes we do. But it's really that simple. There should be no question which is greater. 1 Corinthians, I want you to look at that with me, and you can grab this scripture and you can keep hold of this. I think this is one of those gems. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It can help us to be encouraged about sharing the gospel wherever we go. Beginning with verse 16, I think it is. Left my glasses. No, it's verse 18, excuse me. Looks kind of like a 6. 
until I get it out there a ways. Chapter 1, verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know Him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs. Greeks look for wisdom. We were talking about that earlier, weren't we? But we preach Christ and Him crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. There's even more there. If you want to keep reading, do it later. I'm still preaching, but, but uh, it is an awesome passage of Scripture. And it's there to encourage the saints and buffer your faith and to hold you up. And Paul knew we'd need that, I think, someday. We'd need to hear those words. Then there's the fear of social shame. Some fear that if they proclaim the gospel that they will be ridiculed and mocked for it. They'll be rejected and ignored for it. They'll be passed over or cut off. Left without a job or livelihood. Maybe left without family and friends. I know people that fit all these categories. For some in this world, not maybe the United States, but other places, <coughs> they may even be abused or even killed for their faith. Compared to many places on the globe, though, we American Christians are pretty wimpy compared to those who suffer persecution for the cause of the gospel. Somebody says, I'm not going to eat lunch with you anymore in the school cafeteria, and we think that's intense persecution because you're a believer. You see, the reason for Paul's consistent message to proclaim the gospel of God, Romans 1.1, as far as I know in Scripture, that's the only place that the gospel is ever referred to as the gospel of God instead of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans 1.1. So the reason for Paul's consistent message to proclaim the gospel of God is that above all else, he knew the grace of Christ. He knew it. This is his testimony. It isn't something he heard about. It isn't philosophy that he read in a book. This is what God was doing in his life because he knew God. <coughs> Four significant facts back this up. First of all, the word power means the might, the energy, the force, and the strength that is within God. It's the very nature of God to be all-powerful. God embodies all power. He possesses all power. He gives power to whomever He chooses, and He takes power away as He chooses. But incredibly, God chooses to use this incredible power in a loving way. I don't know why, because there's times I think God's losing it because He doesn't just wipe somebody off the map for all the evil, wicked stuff they're doing. That's not what God does. And that's the good news. The good news. He could wipe us off the face of the earth, but His nature is love and compassion and grace, so He uses His power to send the gospel of Christ, which is the only real hope there is, that we might be saved. 
<coughs> Glory to God. Father, we want to thank You right now that Your plan is the one that really counts around here. It's not about how wicked we are or, or how, how righteous we think we might be. It counts for anything. It's all about You. And it's all about what You did with Your Son Jesus Christ on the cross. For from that very cross flows Your love directly to us that we might hand that love to this degenerate generation that we are living in. Thank You, Lord, for all You have done and all You're doing right now. And then God saves all who believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and You are... What was it? Saved. And you are what? Saved. Is anybody here excited about that? Saved from what? Saved from eternal damnation. Saved from, from a, a hopeless life while we live here on the face of this earth. There are people that you and I both know who are living, that means they're, they're breathing air and their hearts are beating, that have no hope about eternal things. They're lost. They're lost to eternity for sure, and they're lost while they're here. Because they are walking around in pain and agony and stuff that's going on in their lives and they have no place to turn with it. Sin separates us from God and it's from sin that we are saved. Hallelujah. So what's belief? Well, it's the one condition for salvation. Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you... If you uh, oh my. I was telling you about how the, the traction is slipping. I was going to just quote it because I quote it about a million times a week. <laughs> if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. So let's talk about belief. Because it is the one condition for salvation according to Romans 10. So we have to understand this word belief just a little bit. So what does it mean to believe? Well, a person who really believes, I think, commits herself, commits himself to what they believe. So you say you believe in Jesus Christ. Are you committed to Him? How committed are you? Say you believe in eating breakfast. How committed are you to eating breakfast? I'm pretty committed to it. I know, I, I reflect that. I think we commit ourselves to what we really believe. What comes out of our mouth really doesn't mean as much as what shows up in our life when it comes down to commitment level. If we are not committed, then we don't really believe. Jesus said, if you love me, if you believe in me, you, my commands will come out of you. It's not a formula, by the way. That's another thing I've been working on in this hopper of mine. You know, there's a real tendency in the church sometimes to be kind of James-like. We take the book of James and we say, well, if you want to really be a believer, then you've got you to do these good things. You've got to have these good things going on in your life. And I think what it really means is if I really believe and I really trust and I'm allowing the Spirit to work on my life, then these things come out of my life. The works just happen. I don't do the works to get Jesus. I get Jesus to do the works. Okay? One amen. That's good. But if we're not committed, then do we really believe? You see, many people, a lot of us, 
want to come to family meetings, but we don't really want to be involved in the family business. A lot of people want to come to family meetings, but they don't want to be involved in the family business. There's much more to belief as it relates to commitment and faith than just going to church and showing up and doing our civic duty with the body of believers. <clears throat> Here just about oh, a few weeks ago, I was, had been out to the hospital there in Baker City, and I was coming down Hughes Lane back to the church, and I, uh, I listened to American Family Radio <clears throat> while I'm in my, my pickup a lot of the time, which means from point A to point B, and I'm going to get about three or four minutes of whatever's on. And that's kind of what happened that day. Don Wildman is the founder of American Family Association. And uh, there was a point when he knew that somebody had to start taking a stand. By the way, he was a, a Methodist pastor who would stand here with you and I and be a Nazarene no problem. And he founded this thing to take a stand against the degeneration of our culture. He's doing what God called him to do. But here's what he was saying, and I didn't get to hear the whole thing. I got to hear about two minutes of it, and then I made up the rest. <laughs> because I think it's what he was saying. Because it's what God struck in my heart. I was listening to him. He said, all around us our culture degenerates. The Bible calls homosexuality a sin, and he calls us to take the hope of the gospel out to the world. But me? I go to church on Sunday. The preacher preaches and I go home. That's the way we do it nowadays. The Bible says that God calls abortion murder and abomination to God's creation and He calls us to take the hope of the gospel to those who are hurting and lost. But me? I show up at church on Sunday, the preacher preaches and I go home. It's the way we do it nowadays. My culture works hard at pushing God out of everything that we have founded this nation upon. And Jesus calls me to be light in the darkness. Me? I go to church on Sunday. The preacher preaches. I go home. Because that's the way we do it nowadays. Many children grow up in homes that never know a godly influence. Me? Hey, I go to church on Sunday. The preacher preaches. I go home. That's the way we do it nowadays. On both sides of my home and across the street I live on, there is pain, sorrow, bondage, and guilt. Jesus has placed His hope and His peace and His Holy Spirit in me, the hope of glory. But me... I go to church on Sunday. The preacher preaches. And I go home. That's the way it's done nowadays. Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He said, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. And oh yeah, Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. But me? I go to church on Sunday. The preacher, he preaches. I go home. That's the way we do it around here nowadays. 
Hey there. My name's Lenny. I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Set apart for the gospel of God. What's your name? Is it that hard? Is it really that difficult for us to reach out in Jesus' name? What's happened to the church? Why are we not alive anymore? Why do we let all this stuff go on around about us and, and we check off our I went to church list and we forget to take whatever the preacher preached about home with us and change our neighbors? See, salvation means deliverance from sin. It means deliverance from mistakes, from corrupt ideas and thoughts, from moral impurity, and from a crooked and perverse generation. I went to a, uh, a conference. Betty and I went with some folks from our church, and they had a couple tickets that popped up over at the Young Life camp out of Antelope, Oregon. Have any of you ever been there? If you ever get a chance to go, it's like Disneyland in the desert. I mean, it's amazing there. And it's all geared toward young people and directing them to God. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and tell you all the stuff they have because it's amazing. If, if somebody thought this would be a great thing for kids to do, they did it. And it's all there. <laughs> it's crazy and uh, pretty amazing. But they, every once in a while, they have something pretty intentional. Have you ever read any of Francis Chan's books? Mm-hmm. Crazy Love is kind of like his biggest one. Um, there's some other things. I've used his resources for years in Sunday school. The guy is all about the heart of God. And to be honest, uh, when Betty and I got an invitation to go to this, there was a lot going on. We were both pretty busy. and we I, I don't know about what, I can't remember what Betty was thinking, but I was kind of thinking, yeah, you know, Francis Chan's a good guy, but he's just another preacher. <laughs> I've heard lots of preachers in my day. Some pretty stinking good ones. And I, I, but I decided to go because these folks in our church, are. we wanted to build a relationship with them more, and they have a real heart for God, and I like hanging around with people like that. So we went. So Francis gets up, and he was playing my music. The first thing he said when he got up there, he said, I don't even know why I'm here. I don't know why you're here. Because you, you sure don't need another message. I'm going... Dude, were you reading my mind? <laughs> Amazing guy. And that's how he opened things up so humbly. He told about his journey. He preaches to thousands every week in this big church he's got in California. But he was getting a little bit disillusioned with the whole thing. He said, I started reading Scripture, and Jesus was telling me that I needed to be making disciples. I needed to be given my witness. He said, I'm going to stand behind pulpits. He said, I don't care how many people are out there. You and I would go, thousands and thousands of people, I don't think I'll do that. That sounds kind of scary, you know, but it doesn't matter to him. Another extra thousand or ten thousand doesn't matter to him. He's fine there because he's in his comfort zone. He's an amazing communicator of God's Word. But he said, as I began to read this and God started using it in his own heart, he said, all of a sudden I was disillusioned with what I'd always been counting as my part in discipleship. And I knew that I had not been sharing the gospel. He said, I could stand up here and preach to thousands, ten thousands, no problem. But have me go talk to that guy. I walk up to him and share my faith with him. He said, I'm way out of whatever I was thinking I was called to do. 
but God was calling him. So he took off, went to China, and hung around with Christians over there for a while. And they said, what's church like, Pastor Chan, over in America? And he says, well, it's a lot different than here. Because over there, they kind of sneak around and meet together in basements and warehouses and small groups. This is probably a huge church, what we even have here today, compared to what he was seeing. So he said, it's a little different. In America, he said, we, we get together, we build a great big building, and everybody comes to church. And they laughed at him. They said, oh, Francis Chan, get out of here. Because <laughs> they didn't know anybody ever did church like that. They didn't know you could just walk into a church and not be worried about somebody coming in and hauling you off to prison and persecuting you for your faith. But here's what he talked about. He said, first of all, the church needs to get more intentional about the mission of the gospel of God. There's something huge about the word intentional. See, I can kind of just sort of float through my day and come to the end of the day and, you know, I got a few things done. I did this, I did that. I didn't do anything momentous, though. I didn't do anything on purpose. I just sort of did things as they came. But if I get up in the morning and I intend to share the gospel with everybody I get a chance to, I mean, I, I pray about it, I seek God for it, and I go out the door that day in order to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with my neighbors, with my wife, with my kids, with the guy that's pumping my gas, with the gal that's checking out my groceries, and I know that's what I'm going to do today, that's intentional. And I'll probably get some of it done. Across the street, around the world, the mission is exactly the same. Secondly, here's what he said. Now hang on to your seats a little bit. Or maybe this is just for me. That happens too. He said, we American Christians are so protective of our private time. We don't have time to really share the gospel with our world. We got ski boats, we got four wheelers, we got snowmobiles, we got cabins in other states, we go skiing all winter. What else? And we don't let anything interfere with our private time. Well, as far as I was concerned, right about then he went from preaching to meddling. But I had to go, yep, he said that, he sure did. I heard it. And God spanked me about it. You see, there's a huge need for the people of God to recognize how huge eternity and where we spend eternity is, where my neighbors will spend eternity, where the people that I come in contact with, where are they going to spend eternity, with Jesus or without Jesus? Oh my. And how short is the time that we may have left to share the gospel of God? The hope, the only real hope that ever really mattered anyway. If we really believe the gospel of God is the good news, shouldn't we make whatever changes are necessary to get the word out? Man, it's getting quiet in here. I don't like that. I, I sort of feel funny now. <laughs> or do we just go to church on Sunday? preacher preaches. 
we go home. Because it's been so long since we've done anything. It's just the way we do it nowadays. Father, we don't...